The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I'm joined today by Kathleen Goldhar. Uh, she is the host of the six-part series that uh, just came out just uh, a couple months ago called True Crime Byline. How you doing, Kathleen? I'm good. How are you? Really good. So you are you are in Canada still, I am. right? <laughs> still in forever. <laughs> I know. I'm not moving to your part of the world. <laughs> <laughs> no. Have you ever like peeked down below the border, see what it's like, and then scoot back up there? I have traveled to the U.S. quite a bit, but yeah, I'm from Canada. I live here okay. in Toronto. Um, and so you, right now, is it you, you're an executive producer at Antica Productions? Yes, it's called Antica, which is, I know, strange because it's spelled Antica, but that's how you pronounce it is Antica. Okay. Now, is that new? So something I've been going through just working in this industry, um, the podcasting industry here in the U.S. seems to really be moving towards these production companies that are yeah. that are doing all the podcasting, where it used to be almost completely independent. Um, has it been that way in Canada? Because it seems like, like even way back in the day, like one of my favorite podcasts ever was Someone Knows Something with David Ridgen, but even that was produced by CBC Radio. Um, has there been a shift in, in Canada in kind of from like independent to more production house driven, or has it always kind of been that way? Well, it's actually always been CBC. I mean, always, you know, podcasting is really new, right? So it's funny to say right. always, but um, yeah. it, it really was driven by CBC where I actually worked for 20 years um, mm-hmm. and uh, worked on a couple of podcasts with CBC podcasting, which has like become its own department and a really powerful and strong and well staff department. Um, and Antica is one of a few companies here in Canada now that are podcast first, audio first companies for sure. Um, and we do a lot of work with Americans. And so I think our industry is kind of mirroring you guys as our industries tend to anyways, just a little bit mm-hmm. smaller because we're Canadian. Um, but a lot of our <laughs> a lot of our partners are, uh, can, are American. And we're doing a lot of work in the UK as well. But yeah, we work with a lot of Americans. And I think the industry is kind of mirroring the same, where there's still the large public broadcasters that are putting out podcasts and put a lot of money and effort into it. But then smaller production houses are popping up like Antica and doing the work as well. Right. Is there is there much of a... Because I'm trying to think back. I know I've interviewed several Canadian podcasters, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of just independent you know, people in their basements and garage putting out podcasts in Canada it all seems to be running through yeah. or a large majority of it seems to be running through um, a production house of some kind, whether it's small or a large one. Yeah. You know what? I haven't done a really good sort of uh, understanding of who's out there. Like there's so many podcasts. I'm sure there's lots of people in their basements or in their houses right. doing podcasts in Canada, right. but you know, it always comes down to Canada versus the United States. We just don't have the numbers. Um, um, uh, so it always often comes down to things like CBC being the driver because it's kind sure. of the biggest. Um, but yeah, like Antica, from what we can understand now, we're probably the biggest independent podcast company in mm-hmm. Canada. Um, but it's uh, it's still really, really new. So 
But I, there are smaller companies for sure. And there are a lot of independents yeah. making their own podcasts here, just like in the States. Yeah. And it's getting less and less here. I just like the industry changed. So I've been doing yeah. this since 20, 2015. The industry kind of changed on me and I didn't, and I didn't notice. And then I, as I started getting requests for like, people want to talk to me about hosting projects here and there. And it's like, as I'm talking to these people, I'm like, is this a, is this for TV or for podcasting? Cause yeah. like the process has become the same. Like we got to pitch it to networks and do all that. But exactly. It's really intertwined now with the TV and movie worlds for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. You've been, you went to school for journalism and uh, you've, you've been in, in this, the business of reporting from what I can see pretty much your whole professional career, right? Yeah, that's pretty much all I've really ever done <laughs> of any worth. Um, uh, yeah, I did. Journal- My father was a journalist. I wanted to be a print reporter following in his footsteps. Uh, went to journalism school and then took off and worked in the northern part of Canada uh, in the Yukon for a while um, in a- as a print reporter, but then uh, moved to the middle of Canada to Winnipeg with the man who would become my ex-husband. Um, and I got a job at uh, CBC Radio because there was no print reporting work at the time. And that kind of right. started my uh, audio reporting world and it just blew me, I just blew me away. I loved it. Um, so I never really turned back. And so I spent uh, 18 years at CBC Radio um, where um, I started, I was one of the original reporter, original producers of a program called The Current, which became sort of CBC Radio's flagship national current affairs program. Mm-hmm. And I was there for 18 years, pretty much did everything from producing to documentaries, eventually working my way up to becoming its, its executive producer. Um, and it was there that I ended up very luckily working with a friend of mine who was at the show with me on a podcast called Escaping Nexium, which turned into mm-hmm. a pretty big hit um, that was about the cult Nexium. And we got in okay. on the ground floor of that. His friend was actually the woman who was the big whistleblower uh, of that cult. I don't know if you remember that story, but it was, uh, he was brand- like my... branding women Yeah, with his initials and his... Wasn't there a, a video documentary recently made about that? Yeah. Something HBO there, did The Vow and things yeah. like that. So yeah. we did the podcast called Escaping Nexium, and it was an amazing opportunity. And it just showed me uh, the world and the possibilities of podcasting. And I sort of never turned back. I ended up going into podcasting at CBC, working on another one, and then um, getting recruited to work at Antica, where I've been now for uh, nearly three years. Um, where I've done a whole bunch of other podcasts, um, a lot of them serialized investigative ones, and then True Crime Byline, which is more of a interview program. Because mm-hmm. you you also hosted, um, what's it called? Do you know Mordecai? Yeah, so that's that a more serialized it? one, and I'm working on another one right now that I'm also hosting. So I do both serialized work and interview shows. Yeah, and you had that was an interesting one because you had a, a personal connection, right? It was it was. It was one of my best friends who actually yeah. was also married to my ex-husband and also divorced from my ex-husband. And we became friends <laughs> after they got divorced. And she ended up getting caught up in a kind of catfishing situation. It wasn't quite the same, but that's what people, that's kind of the genre that it's now put into is catfishing. He wasn't who he said he was. Right. Um, and so now, now how did how did True Crime Byline come to be? 
So the man who owns the company, his name is Stuart Cox. He has been working, he's kind of the face of the company and the salesman of the company. And he has been doing some really great work connecting to some of our big media part, big like other media organizations in Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. we've, we've done some work with um, a bunch of the newspapers here because they're interested like everybody else in getting into podcasting. Um, but they really have discovered you sort of need audio experts and podcasting experts to do it well. As I'm sure you see that all the time, people think right. they can do podcasts and they realize it's a whole other talent and sort of uh, ability. And so uh, the National Post, which is one of our two big national newspapers here in Canada and him have been talking for quite a few years. Um, and True Kind Byline was the was the evolution of a lot of years of work and conversations about what might be a niche that we could fill um, in the true crime space and in, in, in using the good, amazing work that their reporters have been doing over the years. And, and so t- tell us what this, because it's a six-part series. You guys just launched this year, June of 2022, this year. Yeah. Like everything's, they're all released now, right? They're all, all released, but we're in the mid, we're, the, we're, we're, we're working on uh, sort of it becoming a larger series. This was, I guess you could look at it like a pilot. Um, So hopefully there's going to be a lot more. Um, But what it is, basically, it's a a look at, um, I interview reporters about the crimes that they covered um, that have changed who they are as people and as journalists, basically, and about how working on those stories affected them professionally and personally. Okay. And so in each episode is a different case of different reporter exactly so it's from um one of the biggest murder cases in canada ever known was a murder case of a man named paul bernardo i don't know if you remember that name but he and his wife killed a couple of schoolgirls. it became a very big case so we spoke to the reporter who covered them uh covered that trial it was a real uh intense trial in the 90s where there was the use of videotape evidence which was really quite new for at the time, I mean, now obviously videotaped evidence is nothing special, but at the time it was really something. Um, and then we spoke to another reporter who covered um, a case of a man in British Columbia who was charged with killing uh, dozens of women um, from Vancouver. Uh, the women that he killed were indigenous women who were living in a in a more marginalized part of the city and who a lot of them were involved in sex work um and were ignored uh by by the police and by the media their disappearances were ignored and were sort of uh said to be just because they were transient that's what Mm -hmm. the police said that they didn't take them seriously and then they discovered many years later that there was a serial killer on the loose and uh this reporter um, with her team at the Vancouver Sun, covered the disappearances and then the trial and really spent a lot of time getting to know the families of these women and bringing these women to the public's attention as the humans that they were with all of their complications and nuances and and families right. and everything that went into losing them. And then sort of exploring the sy- systemic issues that exist here and everywhere when it comes to marginalized people. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so that's, the, that's two of the cases, but yeah, that's what we do is we cover, um, big cases that reporters have covered. Right. And, and really get into the, how the, how the reporting on it affected the journalists that were covering them. How affected them personally, and then how it influences them down the road. 
So how right. the case that they worked on now, how, the, the things that it brought up during those investigations, how did it make you the journalist you are today? Right. Now, the, the case that you selected for today, the murder of Joanne Wilson, is that mm-hmm. one that is covered as one of the six on the uh, it is. crime byline? Okay. It is. Yep. Uh, um, so why don't you go ahead and give us the, the beats of that case so people have a good understanding of the case. Sure. Um, before they get to listen to the breakdown with the uh, the journalist that covered it. Sure. So basically, it was a case of a woman named Joanne Wilson, who was 43 years old, a mother of three, had come out of what became obvious was a um, a violent marriage. Um, and she had been married to a man named Colin Thatcher. And what made this case stand out and what made the media... Uh, glom onto it was that Colin Thatcher was a very well-known politician in Canada. His father had been the premier of his provinces. Province was just like a governor in the United States. He himself had be, had held was a politician and had held high and powerful positions within his government. Mm-hmm. In 1983, on a cold winter night, uh, Joanne Wilson pulled in after work into her garage and a man was waiting for her in the garage and who shot her numerous times and killed her. The thing about this case that was really beyond her husband being as famous as he was and that their divorce and custody battle was actually covered in the media before she died. Mm-hmm. She was quite open about the domestic abuse she had suffered at his hands, the harassment, the stalking, but also shockingly, um, I'm trying to remember what year it was that she was a couple of years before she was killed. In in 1981, I think is when, which was yeah. two years before when she was two shot. Years, she was shot. She was standing in her kitchen, filling her dishwasher and somebody using a high pro high power rifle shot her through the kitchen window shot her in the shoulder didn't kill her she was in the hospital for three weeks nobody was ever arrested uh and two years later she was murdered in the same home uh and the thing at the time was there was all this headlines about how shocking it was that she had been killed and then a few months later her husband was charged and everybody was shocked but really if you see it in today's light and today's understanding of domestic abuse this was not a shocking case his harassment and his anger towards her had been ramping up and there had been other stressors in his life as it was getting closer and closer to the day that she was going to be killed. Um, So yeah, so a few months later, he actually gets caught partly by a sting from the police. They reach out to a small criminal who had actually gone to the police after she had been killed and said, look, you might in your investigation notice that I have some interactions with her husband I want you to know that I didn't kill her, but he had actually asked me to kill her. So the police use him to help get him on tape. Uh Uh, And he doesn't actually uh, admit to it, but what he does say to the guy, and it became quite famous, is deny, deny, deny. So that was his advice, just always deny. So that, I guess that's not that unique of a phrase, but you always hear that denied, that came from this case? That came from this case. He just said deny, deny, deny. That was his big advice to this guy. So the thing that struck me about this was speaking to this reporter, her name was Barb Pachalik, who covered the case, and she covered it for 20 years. Because what happened was Colin Thatcher, after he was found guilty, used all of his influence and money and understanding of the justice system to continually either appeal, which he never got, but he appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. And then he tried for years to get out of his sentence early. 
Um, and she covered everything about that. So in Canada here, just so people understand the difference, you don't ever, you get life in prison, but in Canada, life in prison for first degree murder is 25 years in prison. And rarely do you spend more than 25 years in prison. You can get Mm -hmm. deemed a dangerous offender and then you never get out. But, um, most people, if they live past the 25 year mark, they tend to get out. They'll be forever on parole and be connected to the police, but they'll get out. Right. But he fought for many years to get out early, and he actually eventually did get out before his 25 years was up. Um, so she covered him the entire time, and uh, he actually even wrote a book from prison. Like, he he was a guy who was not uninterested in, in, in going away quietly. He wanted people to be talking about him and about his case. And the media continually did. And for a very long time, there was sort of this reticent to talk about the domestic abuse that was happening in the home and an understanding that this was a pattern. And only because he was a well-known person did it stand out. But really, it was a very typical case of intimate partner violence that ended up in in a wife's killing. And so talking to Barb, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to, so they, they were divorced, right? When they, didn't they divorce a few years before this? And they yes, went the whole, she had been remarried, actually. So was she was, she was, was she remarried at that time when this yes. was happening? Yeah. So what, what was the, what was the beef between, was it still just over custody and things like that? Like why, why three years later is, is he still so angry with her? So there were, there was a long protracted custody battle. She uh-huh. eventually acquiesced it after she got shot she dropped the fight for the custody for her youngest son. She kept her daughter and they had another son that had become uh, pretty much tied to his father and she didn't fight for him. So that was over, but there was about to be a transfer of significant funds to Joanne Wilson from uh. Colin Thatcher. And also he was had gotten, um, he had lost his cabinet position in his government over a fight with the premier at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. and that was just a few days before the murder. So there were things swirling around, but definitely the money transfer was about to happen. Yeah. And this guy, like when I was just reading about him, like before they got divorced, he was having all these affairs and it seemed like, like wasn't trying to hide it. It seemed like everybody, like reporters were reporting on the affairs that he was having on his wife and, and he just, he continued to get reelected to his position through all that. (laughs) <laughs> Does that surprise you in this day and age that men can continually behave badly and people will still vote them in? <laughs> Not one. Especially when, when we have elections where it's like, which like we have to count how many sexual assault allegations are on each of the candidates and vote for the one with less. With the least, pretty, yeah. Yeah, it's sad yeah. and pathetic. Um, yeah. And, and so obviously the same thing as it was going on with this guy. I, I, I am fascinated by the, I, I guess I, did, I saw that he was paroled in 2006, after 22 years, I didn't realize that a life sentence kind of means 25 years. So he he was almost he was almost ready to. And is that is that a parole usually like at 25 years? You you're paroled. You're paroled. The difference is if you're what you call a lifer, which is the person who would have spent 25 years in prison for first degree murder, you are always then on parole when you leave prison. Other right. people, if you finish your sentence before. Rarely, actually, do you finish your whole sentence. If you, though, do finish your entire sentence and aren't let out early on parole, you are free to be who you are and not be on parole. But if you are somebody who has been charged with first, found guilty of first degree murder, you will forever be on parole once you leave. 
Right. So he was so the, is he's alive. He's on parole still. He still has to mm-hmm. commit connect connect to his parole officer and not leave and be all that. You know, be his life has to be somewhat controlled, but it isn't in prison. So that life sentence really means like the state will kind of have control of you over you for life, but generally, yes. most people are only actually imprisoned for. Is is like twenty five years like a hard and fast rule? Like once you hit yep. twenty five years, then you're just paroled and you you go out yep. on parole after that. Unless uh, you're deemed what what is a dangerous offender, and that has to be, you have to have you have to basically be a serial killer to be a dangerous offender or a serial rapist or something like that. And then right. what happens is you go in front of the parole board and plead your case. And I don't know of one case where a dangerous offender got out, but you're legally entitled to try to get out. Um, but those are the only ones that don't get out or you die in prison if you are older. Right. So it has to be, does it have to be a serial offender of some kind? Like someone that's done that, that is killed yeah. or raped multiple times. So there's no dangerous offender that just did something horrible one time. I've looked it up. I'm just going to see, um, it's reserved for Canada's most violent criminals and sexual predators, crown attorneys, which is a state, um, like a, state attorney in the U.S., can mm-hmm. seek designation during sentencing and must show that there's a high risk the criminal will commit violent or sexual acts in the future. So you have to have done something more than once, or else okay. it's pretty hard to prove that you'll do something again. How does that work? And I, I know you didn't come on. It's okay. <laughs> I actually do know this stuff, so I don't mind. Talk about yep. Canadian law. But uh, so like, what if, what if someone, like, like a triple homicide, if somebody goes and, you know, wipes out a whole family or like the West Memphis three case murders, three children. Could they be deemed as a dangerous offender or because that only happened once it still would only be, it just depends on what the, so the crown attorney will, the person is found guilty of whatever Mm -hmm. it is. And then at sentencing, which is the next sort of step in the process, the crown Mm -hmm. attorney will ask that judge to deem them a dangerous offender. And they have to argue why they think, that they are a dangerous offender and have some kind of proof that if out, they are danger to the public. And so I guess if it's a one-time thing, but it shows that they could be, I I don't think there's any rules around that. You just have to be able to prove to a judge that there's reasonable grounds that they are dangerous to the public and they should never be able to get out. How do you, just your personal opinion, like how does it, because you've been in this true crime space for so long and yeah. you know a lot of these cases, how does that system work like compared to the U.S.? Because in the U.S. generally, if you murder someone, in most cases, unless you're white and rich, you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life. Um, and even sometimes those those folks do compared to this where after 25 years they're out. Do, do you think that that's... That, that the Canadian system is more valuable, that it works? Do you see much recidivism yeah. or repeat offenders after they get out? I mean, I haven't looked at the recidivism rates for a long time. Um, Canada doesn't have a great justice system. I think mm-hmm. that we are better than you guys, but we definitely still have jails full of Indigenous men and Black men more than anything mm-hmm. else. Um, women who are in prison generally tend to be victims of some kind of uh, situation. And so there's not enough effort and money and anything that goes into actually helping a lot of people. Our jails are full. uh, And absolutely, people who have money here in this country do better in the justice system than those who don't. And they tend to be Mm -hmm. white and men. And that's the same. Um, We 
we we don't have an a prison industrial complex uh, sort of like you guys do um i think it's a really complicated question i and I don't want to like be saying we're better than you are. I just think we're also somewhat smaller. So the numbers are smaller. And I think there is, uh, there are fewer people in Canada who are in jail for their entire lives and never will see the light of day again is the right. way that I would put it. Um, and nobody's in jail. Like we don't have the three strikes you're out rule, those kind of things. Like no, yeah. most people don't end up in jail for doing something small and stupid, but because they are caught up in the system, they never get out. I think a lot of people cycle through and never get, never get the chance to get their life back on track. Um, and we have discrimination and we have unfair systems and we have people stuck in situations because of where they come from and who they are, just like you guys do. Um, right. But I just don't, yeah, I don't think we have the same, I could be proven wrong. There could be somebody there, but because nobody is sentenced for life, unless you've literally been a serial killer or a serial rapist, it's pretty hard to spend your whole life in Canada in jail. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, you know, cause the way that you would, and I, I, our system is incredibly, I mean, my, my primary work is in wrongful conviction. Cases, right. So I definitely, we have or, wrongful or, conviction cases here. 100% and very famous ones yeah. for sure. Um, but uh, as we were talking about before, everything in Canada on the scale is smaller compared to you guys, but it, it, it is definitely here. Yeah. Um, we just have this, this mentality of, and I get it. There's the, there's a th thought of like, well, it's a life for a life. If you took somebody's life, then you're going to prison for the rest yeah. of yours. But there are so many, our, our, our system is so, you know, I worked a case a few years ago. It was a 15 year old girl, 15 year old black girl who I think is innocent of the crime in anyway, but even if she was guilty of what they said she was guilty of, she was guilty of, of they convicted her of a group of adult men yeah. were breaking into a, a house or an apartment to steal some things and ended up killing the woman. And they recruited her at 15 to be the lookout. And that's mm. what she was convicted of. And she was sentenced to life in prison. Which, yeah. Like she'll never in, in the American system, she will never get out. And it's I even talked to one of the victim's family members, um, the, actually the victim's only surviving family member. And even he said he's like, even if even if she did this, like it, she was 15 and, and, and she was a lookout because, you know, yeah, this I older mean, 15. group of guys got her like she should have another chance at, at her life again. But in, in the States, she doesn't get it because she doesn't have money. She's black. And she was a scapegoat, essentially, for the DA to be able to close the case. To close the case. I mean, here in Canada, the other thing is that 15-year-old um, would still be considered a young offender. And mm -hmm. some youths do get brought into adult court, but you have to argue for that. And a judge has to agree to that. And it's pretty right. rare. And no young person, no young offender spends their whole life in prison. So that that wouldn't happen here my guess is that case wouldn't have gone that way here. Right. Um, so there are, there are, like, I do think our system is better, but that's like, is a very low bar to be better, right? Like it's not, yeah. not it's, great. It's like picking the guy with the least amount of sexual assaults on his record. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, we do, I think there is more fairness here for sure. You know, our, our, our crown attorneys and our judges are not elected. There's a, there's not a lot of politics that go into mm -hmm. it. We have a tough on crime base here for sure, but not the way it is there. Um, so I don't think politics is as wrapped up. We don't have, 
Now, I could be wrong about this. We don't have any private prisons, so there's not like a lot right. of money that gets involved in all of this stuff from, I mean, I could be wrong. I think that's something we should fact check because I, I, I don't, yeah. it's been a long time that I've even looked into this stuff, but um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different system for sure. And no 15 year old would ever go. But like I said, women in the prisons in Canada, I would suggest that 95% of them are, are victims of something that also right. get wrapped up and pulled along and there's some man who has hurt them or many and ended up in a certain situation. What, what are the prisons like as far as, you know, another huge flaw in the American system is, yeah. you know, I talk, I talk to people that are in prison all the time and, and I've talked to some guys that have gone in, spent 20 years and were able to maintain their integrity. And when they got out, were still, you know, good productive human beings. Right. But they but even they've told me they're like that's a struggle. Like if you go into prison as a nonviolent person, most people come out in American prisons as a violent person because they, they our, our our system is so there's there's nothing uh, or very little built into our system to actually rehabilitate anyone. It's all about being It's the same here. It's the same here. Yeah. Prisons are dangerous, prisons are violent both for prisoners and for um, uh, guards. It's a they're violent, terrible places that are overcrowded and under-resourced and programs that are supposed to be there to help rehabilitate, rehabilitate people are few and far between. And the recidivism rate is high because they come out without any supports. I mean, just like everything else. Right. For sure. Yeah. So not, not all that, not all that different from, from what we're dealing with. No. Um, well, so in this case, this this guy gets out. We'll, so we'll swing back into the case in the podcast. Podcast. So you you mentioned a couple of the cases. Um, uh, this one, the murder of Joanne Wilson, is another case that's that's covered on the on your show. Yeah. Um, true crime byline, and um, I've listened. I've listened to a couple of the episodes, and it's 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 a really interesting take. It's a deep dive where you hear you know, you know a lot of the behind the scene things that that you guys as journalists go through. In reporting on these, which I've, you know, as a true crime podcaster, it's, it's not quite the same thing, but I find it super interesting because a lot of the things that are, that are talked about, I deal with too, you know, being wrapped up in sure. these cases for so long. Um, so definitely check this out to get the full story on this case. The other five, her name is Kathleen Goldhar and the podcast is called true crime byline. It's a six part series. You can binge it on a, in a couple long drives. So check it out. It could be your next big true crime binge. And Kathleen, thank you very much for taking the time to not only join me, but let me pick your brain about, <laughs> about your justice system and prison system. My pleasure. It was really nice to talk to you. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. 
and make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another true crime binge.